This is a Relay Project. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. It's uh, Thursday, January 19th. Jesperson here with Hicks on Real Talk. I just put out a Twitter poll, an unofficial, unscientific Twitter poll a couple of minutes ago, Johnny, and, and I'm curious to know where you're, you're going to land on this. I, I, on purpose, did not ask you about it. I don't want to know ahead of time before we start recording the show where you stand on this, and so I will now ask you on the record. Wow, uh, put me on the spot. John Hicks, are you still wishing people a happy new year? <laughs> I think I think that's okay, but I think after this weekend, I think three weeks is enough. All right, it's uh, I've posted uh, on my personal uh, Twitter. Give me a follow there at Ryan Jesperson. It's January nineteenth. Are you still wishing people a happy new year? So far, one hundred and sixteen votes. The poll is in its infancy. I'm in the minority. An overwhelming seventy three percent say it's time to move on. But get this, in an interesting development, and we'll ask our lead-off guest, Mo Amir, about this in just a moment, leading in second place, the vote option I never do, as opposed to yes. So in third place, for sure, people are still wishing a Happy New Year at just 12%, a measly and meager 12%. That's me, by the way. Never do. Okay, Grump. <laughs> These are probably the people that, that don't make New Year's resolutions. They don't want to go on the record with things they're going to change about their life or things that they would like to alter <laughs> in the next 12 months every time January hits. So we go straight in. Should we blaze in hot to Mo Amir? You know him. He's sure. the host, the wildly popular host of This Is Van Color on Check. He is an adored and beloved social media personality, and the statistics show that he is the most bleeped political host in the entire <laughs> province of British Columbia. Mo, welcome back to the show. It's great to see your face, pal. Hey, we have you on mute. I think it's I think it's because we were afraid that you were going to come out of here guns blazing. <laughs> F-bombs. F we had you bleep. Yeah. You know, on, on uh, FM radio, AM radio, my own show on television, I've definitely been bleeped multiple times. But the Internet is the Wild West, right? You can say whatever you want. And yeah, you don't have to worry uh, about uh, censorship, as it were. I was going to say, no, nobody, no, no member of this audience is going to be that impressed that you're bleeped all the time. They don't, they don't want to hear the bleeps. Um, hey, are you a are you a, a Happy New Year guy? Do you wishing people a Happy New Year all the time? Are you still doing it here on January 19th, oh, yeah. three weeks in? Oh, yeah. I think if it's the first time you've seen someone in 2023 in January, you can still say yes. Happy New Year. That's the rule that I live by. I agree. And when would you start? Like, when, when's the absolute cutoff? Is it Valentine's Day? Like, if we're going to get really deep into the year? I, I would say February 1st, but I would also say on a case-by-case -case basis, like, if I see you January uh, 5th, and I say Happy New Year, and then I see you the next week, it would be weird for me to say Happy New Year to you again, because I've already seen you. You're going to keep track of this type of thing, though? I, I try to as best as I can. You know, we, yeah. we're all doing our best. <laughs> <laughs> Do you are you ever the guy that's like when, when you when you see somebody and, and, and or, you know, a friend will make a, a mutual friend makes an introduction and says, uh, uh, you know, I'd like you to meet person X. And then you say, it's nice to meet you. And then you get that half a second where they give you that kind of a bit of a stink eye and you know what's mm. coming next. And they say, we've met before. You ever get oh that? yeah, no, that's that's happened to me all the time, and it does. And and I've I've been on both ends of that uh, exchange, 
And, uh, you know, I think the best thing is not to dwell on it. Don't think about it too much. It's yeah, <laughs> I, uh, I I've actually altered my uh, my my uh, my vernacular, so to speak. I've, I've, I changed several years ago. What do you say? I made a conscious change. I literally never, ever say nice to meet you. I it, it will never oh. come out of my mouth. I only ever say nice to see you because oh. nice to see you fits if you're seeing someone again nice to see you is not a weird thing to say if you're meeting someone and so it's now nice to see you 100 percent of the time <laughs> i like that strategy yeah. you know I, I look forward to the day where we can normalize saying uh it's a burden to meet you yeah, I, it's I a bit, to I'm, I, I, I'm told it's supposed to be nice to meet you but I'm not experiencing that feeling right now. We may say, <laughs> "Yeah, hey, are you?" Uh, I you, wish it was. Yeah. Uh, you uh, in, in in your household or in your uh, in your tight circle in your sphere? Um, are, are you and your loved ones inclined to make New Year's resolutions? Uh, yes, I'm. I'm pretty. I'm. I pretty much run like fifty fifty on them historically, but I do love New Year's resolutions. Uh, we do have some New Year's resolutions between myself and, and my girlfriend, and so it's been going pretty strong. I think January 19th today is Quitter's Day. That's when most people uh, quit on their resolutions, but um, we're still going strong, and, and hopefully the, the viewers and the listeners are as well. Yeah, okay. So I'm going to be – so uh, producer of this show, John Hicks, uh, sitting here, and as as we speak – um, I looked over and had to just for a quick second did a bit of a double take that I think was a protein shake that you were vigorously shaking yeah, this behind morning the- I did the old <laughs> forgot to put the cap on lock and got it all down my shirt and had to totally change before oh, yeah. I came to work how's yours going well it's uh yeah well I mean I, we're not here to talk about me John um and so uh so it's so it's quitters day but but you're yeah. still on you're still on the wagon Johnny I'm going I worked okay. out yesterday and the day before and the day before well you just bought new gym equipment so you have to you have no choice what is your New Year's resolution Mo my New Year's resolution, and I, I tend to focus on process, but here's the thing. I put on about 40 pounds during the pandemic, and I don't have any more excuses. I really got to get fit and, and eat healthy and, and get back on track to where I was pre-pandemic. And so, you know, yes, I've, I've kind of put that number out there, 40 pounds, but I'm more focused on doing something with regard to fitness every day, yeah. uh, making sure I batch cook for the week. So I'm eating healthy throughout the week and really focusing on those processes and having someone uh, as in a partner to keep me accountable and to keep each other accountable. And so I'm not really like weighing myself every week or anything like that, but I'm making sure that those processes are there. And I, I'm happy to say that since coming back from vacation, uh, I've got in some fitness every day. Wow. I've been eating pretty healthy with, you know, the the weekly cheat meal uh, as well. And uh, it's been going good. And, and I think organization, uh, writing things down, focusing on the processes and having someone that keeps you accountable are really the keys to any to any goals or, or achieving any. Goals. So you and your girlfriend, Katie, you're you're on the same yeah. page on this one. Like she's your so, you know, your accountability partner, so to speak. Yeah, I guess so. And I, I again, I don't think she necessarily has a tangible goal in terms of what she wants to uh, achieve. But I think she does also want to not eat out as much as as, as we have been for the last year. Uh, she wants to get back into that regular fitness routine as well, which I think 
you know, we all have excuses in terms of work or just life in general, but I think both of us do want to get back on track and, and we're working towards that. So it's, uh, it's great. It's great when you can do it with someone, man, I'm with you. And I, uh, yeah, I put on like at least 25 pounds during COVID. <laughs> it's like, it's one of those things where I'm like, it's kind of like, we're all like, ha ha ha. And everyone's like, yeah, it's a COVID. And everyone's like, ah, but then, yeah. but then you get to the point that I'm not like, I don't care if somebody's, you know, overweight, underweight, all this kind of thing. We talk about it and I know people's totally, attitudes yeah. are different on it. And I just think it, as long as you feel good in your skin, as long as you, you know, you answer to yourself, people have, it's a complicated matter. We've been talking actually a lot about fat phobias and fat shaming yeah. on the show over the past couple of weeks and things like that. So it's a, it's a personal conversation. And, and I think the numbers game, when you start talking about this, again, that needs to be an individual type thing. I don't know about you though. I mean, for me, and, and we say real talk, so we'll keep it real. I, yeah. I'm at the stage right now, Mo, where honestly, I'll like, I'll look in the mirror when I'm getting ready and I'm like, I just don't recognize this guy, you know, and it just it's just it's just getting to the point where it's like it's it's annoying me more than anything. And so I'm I'm, I'm trying yeah. to use that to drive me and motivate me, you know, L let me tell you what I, I mean, you might not believe this. People who uh, are, are familiar with my show might not believe this, but uh, it wasn't that long ago that I was modeling for yoga studios like I was in an ad campaign for a, a studio here in BC and, and they had several locations and you know I was great at yoga I was going twice a day in the morning and in the evening and really COVID was the thing that that broke up that routine because this this studio shut down and then even when they reopened the the showers weren't open and it's been very humbling to get back into the practice knowing what I could do you know five years ago um, but humbling myself and really starting as a beginner again and being patient and with myself and, and being gracious with myself to, to get back into the routine. And I think, again, like I said, it's not about what you can accomplish today, but it's about the time that you set aside and the focus you put on something and recognizing that consistency in whatever you pursue and whatever sort of goal uh, will eventually pay off. So uh, in terms of not recognizing yourself, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been feeling that on the yoga mat where I'm like, things that used to come easy. I'm not, I'm nowhere close to, to being able to do. <laughs> yeah. And you know what though? I love what you're talking about, like the spirit of your comments. Uh, you know, you, you, you talk to so many people and I've heard people say this. I seem to be hearing it more and more frequently. People are saying, be gentle on yourself, be gracious mm -hmm. with yourself. Like the idea of self grace. I think so many people that just as human beings, we can in a number of different contexts, right? Whether it's, it's like how we look or how we feel or how much money we make or how much money we owe yeah. or where we live or where we don't live. We can be so hard on ourselves. We just shit talk ourselves. You know what I mean? And I love that idea of self grace. And, and Ryan, I mean, you you probably know this better than than anyone being in this in this industry. This is a and in many industries for sure are surrounded by naysayers and doubt and even people that you think are on your team telling you that you're not good enough or this isn't going to work. And then it, it can really it can really weigh you down. And then when you find a team and I'm great, I'm privileged to say that I now have teams that we're all supporting each other where it's all focused towards continued growth. And we are gentle, but still constructive, still critical, still ambitious. Mm. Uh, you know, it completely changes the game and you become more productive. You become more creative, you become happier. And so having grace with yourself, having grace with others, uh, doesn't mean that you're, you're lazy or you're not going to, you know, try to achieve things or not be ambitious. Uh, it just, it actually means you're enabling 
that productivity and that magic down the line. Yeah, I love it. So you and you and Katie were down in in one of my favorite parts of the <laughs> world. Yeah. Um, I, I was uh, checking out your Instagram and things like that while you guys were vacationing on Maui and and you you hit all the spots, the highway to Hana and Lahaina and all the I mean, anybody that's been there knows. Um, I, I almost don't even want to ask you how is Hawaii because you're going to give us the same answer everybody does. It's perfect. Uh, <laughs> but how is first things first? You were down there like during the holiday season. How was your air travel experience? We talked to Tourism Minister Randy Boisneau yesterday, and everybody has mm-hmm. to acknowledge that it's been a nightmare, not just in Canada, obviously, but around the world these past few weeks. It is. Uh, it was bizarre. And so we were supposed to fly out on. Uh, the 23rd, which was the day that BC had its second big snowstorm. Yeah. And so we're, you know, we didn't know what the, what that snowstorm was going to look like on the 22nd. As, as soon as we were able to check in, suddenly our flight was canceled. Right. And so we're like, okay, this is interesting. Um, you can't get through to WestJet. You're getting no answers. You just see that it's canceled on the YVR site. And so then we're scrambling, right. We're trying to figure out, okay, well, let's just book another flight because we'll get refunded from from WestJet eventually, um, and and we were able to book one a day earlier, and so we missed the snowstorm. We were very lucky; got there uh, one day earlier, which is fantastic. Uh, came back and it was fine. But yeah, the communication is an absolute mess. I had WestJet phone me, and they said, uh, "Hey, like we we noticed that your flight is canceled." And I was in the middle, like it was in the morning, and we were on our way to to go snorkeling or something. And and I said, "Yeah, well, I'm." I'm in transit, I don't have the information on me. And they go, oh, okay, well, do you, like, is there any way you can pull it up? And I'm just, I'm scratching my head. I'm like, you're calling me. Like, how do you not have the information? Like, what? I don't understand. And then, you know, you fill in the, even though they cancel a flight, like WestJet is the one that cancels it, but then you still have to fill out the refund page and the form to get your money back. And it's like, how is this not automated? Where if you cancel it, you automatically give me back the money for that leg of the trip or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, it's just so bizarre and, and just so hard to navigate. And I, I'm not blaming, you know, WestJet customer service. I feel like they're probably understaffed and under-resourced. But when you're a consumer on that end and you're just getting no answers, uh, you know, you you, you literally, I in, in one circumstance throughout the trip, I got an email saying, uh, hey, uh, and this was after they called me, hey, can you call us at this number? I call the number and the number goes, yeah, we're not accepting any phone calls. Jeez. And it's like, well, who's sending out this? Like who sent out this automated message for me to call you then? Right. Like it's just so confusing and frustrating. But again, um, I think our attitude was like, we'll deal with it when we're when we come back in terms of the refunds. and all. Uh, that yeah. Stuff. Otherwise, we were lucky. So. Man, I've had. Hey, like- I, I, Ryan, sorry to, sorry to switch gears on you. I So on the topic of New Year's resolutions. Yeah, I have a New Year's goal and I feel like you're the guy that can. Oh, help wow. Me achieve Let's this go. Goal. What is it? I want to be in 2023. I want to sit on a political panel. Yeah. With Wyatt Sharp. Oh, because this is this. He's the guy, right? Like, I mean, in 15, 20 years, he's going to be like the premier broadcaster in the country, maybe the world. Who knows? He is. We follow each other on Twitter. And I just want to say, like, I want to be able to tell people, like, 
I was I sat on a political panel with that young man. And so I, I hope we can make that happen sometime. I'm pulling up. Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we've had uh, we had Wyatt on the show just a short time ago, uh, a couple of a couple of his appearances ago. Mm-hmm. He was on with uh, not with, but he, he was in the same show of ours with uh, former BC Premier Christy Clark. Uh, oh, people can, yeah, people can check out his Wyatt Sharp show on YouTube. The kid's 13 a kid. I mean, well, he is a kid. He's, he's not. You know, he is a kid. Like, he, it sounds it sounds 13, but he's a he's a. He is a kid. Yeah, it's like it's not like he's like 21 and you're like, look at that kid coming up in the yeah, business. Yeah. It's like, no, he literally is a kid. Like, yeah. uh, he's 13. He's a student. He's, start, he's smart. He's motivated. Like, the way that yeah. he works the phones, the way that he, like, the, the emails or DMs he'll send us privately. The, this guy does all of his own booking. He produces yes. his own show. His hustle is unbelievable. And he's landing all these big fish. Like he'll be like, it's, it's, it's like, who are you? You know, who, who's coming up next week on the, on the Wyatt Sharp show? This 13 year old. He's like, oh, the American ambassador to Canada or like the premier right? of Ontario. Yeah. You're like, geez, man. It's unbelievable. And so like for me, I mean, I've, I've only been in this game five years. So I'm looking, you know, at someone like you and I'm like, oh man, I want to be on that Ryan Jesperson level. Oh, that's and then I'm looking. Over, I'm, I'm looking over to the side, and here's you know 13 year old Wyatt Sharp just killing the game, and, and I'm going like, okay, this kid's going to eat all of our lunch in, in not in in very short time. I'm you locking know, we in. 10, we're, we're trying years. to lock all our sponsors in on like 15 year <laughs> legacy deals, and so they don't all just leave us for the Wyatt Sharp show three years from now. Um, yeah. So it's like typically, people have heard you. Obviously, you've been standalone on this show, and you've also appeared uh, on our unofficial opposition panel with Erica Ifill. Love and Erica, so, and, and, I, and yeah, and, and you guys are like an unbelievable one-two punch. I'm trying to think the, the the dynamic of like you, Erica, and Wyatt might be a little much for Wyatt, but but maybe I'm underestimating. Like I don't know. Well, and here's the thing: like I'm sure some people would be like, "Oh, you're on a panel with with this 13 year old Wyatt Sharp." You know, Mo, maybe you should put on the kid gloves. And I'd look at them and say, "No, no, Wyatt needs to put on the kid gloves for me." Like I'm, I'm intimidated by by his knowledge base and and how good he is. So uh, I think he can hang with with whatever situation you throw us in. Four, four of us might be a little much, but uh, at some yeah. point, I'd love to be able to chat with Well, him. we'll make it happen, my man. I'll, <laughs> I'll tell you, by the end of 2023, we'll make that happen. And uh, okay. yeah, I'll look forward to it. That'll be a good. He's, yeah, he's a remarkable kid. I'll make sure that we send him this link, too, so he hears this praise. Because, you know, encouragement goes on. I don't care what somebody's doing. Uh, whether it's their line of work or their individual pursuits or their their volunteering or what have you, isn't isn't it amazing when when somebody just like offers you a compliment? It goes so far. Totally. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And and I think you know obviously why it's young, but how driven he is, how much he's learning. You know, he is going to get naysayers and people saying, "Why are you doing this? Like, what's the point?" Uh, just keep going. Like he he if he just continues on this trajectory. Uh, it's going to be something like we've never seen in this country. Like, I, I don't know. I can't think of anyone that started broadcasting when they were 13 and political broadcasting to boot. Yeah. You know, so I, the I, runway uh, he has is, is amazing. We've got some, um, you know, like group chats and, and things like that. Some text messages going between some former colleagues or, you know, current colleagues uh, this morning, the Calgary Herald building, which was, you know, an institution on Deerfoot Trail in North Calgary. Mm-hmm. Um, it's where I started my media career and I've got amazing memories of, I mean, I don't even know if people remember some of these names. This was, you know, a while ago, late nineties, but like, you know, like nationally syndicated columnist, Catherine Ford. Um, mm-hmm. One of my first memories of that, that big red brick building, the Calgary Herald building, the national post building. I remember, you know, walking 
walking up to the water cooler, like the literal water cooler on one of my first days. And there's Catherine Ford. And she says to me, she turns to me in her signature style and says, what's in your mug? As she's, you know, dropping some water into her coffee mug. And I look, she's got just a, just a bit of a, a dram of whiskey in her, in her mug. And she's adding water. And then I think of like James Muratek and Heath McCoy and Colette Dewaritz and like just all of the brilliant uh, Gwendolyn Richards and like just all the wonderful journalists mm-hmm. that I worked with in that shop. And, and they've just announced today that building's been for sale for a long time. And uh, U-Haul just bought it and oh uh, no yeah yeah so u-haul just bought it so and um no disrespect to u-haul no disrespect to u-haul they provide a valuable service i'm sure but that's the optics of it sucking and 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 of course it just it represents what's happening the the post media papers i'm not sure if you saw this but a lot of the 12 of their papers they announced today they're taking them to all digital format you know my parents are still like and i love this when i go visit them old school subscribers to the Mm -hmm. print edition and we'll hit the espresso machine and pour a coffee and read the print edition of the paper. And it's just, it reiterates to me today. It's on my heart. It's on my mind today as you and I speak that how much the industry is changing and, and to bring it back to a guy like Wyatt uh, and to somebody and to you, Mo, uh, you know, you, your, your TV show is on a station that's owned a TV station that's owned by employees. I mean, we are yeah. streaming independently. I mean, the, yeah. the industry is changing so much that 20 or 30 or 50 years ago, I mean, hell five years ago, uh, a 13-year-old that would one day have dreams of becoming a broadcaster and hosting a talk show would be at the beginning of a long journey, and we would invite them to move up to Fort St. John or Chetwind or Grand Prairie. Right? And, you know, not even Grand Prairie. That's too big of a market. You know, High Prairie, <laughs> and, you know, and, and cut their teeth at a radio station and, and mop the floors when they're done their shift. And, and now you just go out and hustle and make it happen yourself. And uh, it's exciting, but, but it also has big picture implications on the corporate media. No, side. It, it's true. And, and, you know, all praise to Wyatt and I'm so glad he's doing that, but you look at even my story, you know, I had no broadcast, no journalism, no media experience whatsoever. I started this at 33 and now to be on primetime television in, in BC is it, it still blows my mind. And I feel very, uh, I feel full of gratitude and, and very privileged to be able to do so. But the reality is obviously with this wouldn't exist or this wouldn't happen without the changing mediums, uh, particularly the internet and podcasting and, and YouTube and all that other stuff that we have. And so it's completely opened up the game. You know, on the topic of um, newspapers, though, I understand people lamenting losing this old system, but or this old way of reading the paper. But that's where that's where everyone is for the most part, right? People are on their phones, they're on their computer. And so this was an eventuality that we would go all digital just as we're going largely digital with books as well. And of course we do still have our hard copies of books, but for the most part, that's where the trend is. And so I, I get people lamenting it, but I'm more concerned about, you know, how many people do you have on staff? What is, what is the base of reporters look like? What does the columnists look like? Like those are the areas where I'm a little more uh, sensitive or, or concerned as opposed to like, which medium are you on? Yeah, sure. Yeah, no, there, I mean, there, there's, there's trade-offs, right? Like the, the more digital you go, obviously the more accessible you are, the easier yeah. you are to use. I mean, it, you know, people can transport it, I mean, it feels almost silly to like, you know, you're taking your loony and like plugging the newspaper box and opening it up and like, and then everybody's got to be like, are you honest or not? Like, are you going to take yeah. two copies of the paper? Are you going to take just one? I mean, uh, remember people back in the day that like disagreed with what they were reading in the paper. They'd like pick up after their dogs on the dog walk and then open the newspaper box and deposit the dog's deposit oh, wow. in the newspaper box. Oh, that was a thing? Man, it was a thing. I was part of, like, I wasn't part of it. 
Um, boy, I'm open. You know what that is? I sorry, love sorry, talking you, you to you. Know, what? Ryan, you know what that is? That's the original shit posting. It is the original <laughs> shit posting, literally. But even like back in the end, I'm not making light of this. It's not funny. It was actually a nightmare yeah. for all involved. But I, when, sure. the, you know, when when Herald employees, Calgary Herald employees striked, it, it, it was it was the largest media strike in Canadian history at the time. And I think it still is. Um, wow. and, and I was a non-union position, so I was in a really tough. I mean, it was an easy decision, but a tough spot very early in my career because I, I, I sort of figured, you know, the ramification. I put it this way. I did not consider crossing the picket line. But I wasn't union, so I wasn't going to strike because it didn't. And it was, and, and it ultimately was a real nightmare that that ended up with me resigning. And it was a really tough situation. But I remember yeah. uh, some of the people that were being called in to work, or some of the people that were crossing the picket line, were having the the uh, Calgary Herald newspaper boxes in at least one circumstance actually thrown through Whoa. like bay windows, front windows in their house. I mean, like the newspaper Whoa. boxes were being used as intimidation, and it was wild stuff, man. Back in the day but i mean just a completely different era to say the least um yeah I, you know i'd be curious you know, with regards to subscribers of print media um talking like actual physical newspapers you know you take a bit of a risk obviously the, the financial implications of continuing to produce it are huge like there's the, the actual mm-hmm. printing costs there's the transportation costs of getting them out there's the I mean, at every level right uh, up to like you know little sally the the newspaper delivery girl that's like throw you know rolling them up with elastics and throwing them at the front doors uh, it all costs and obviously yeah. this would be a cost-cutting measure but i'd be curious to see what the retention rate is uh once you start talking you know, people that are maybe a little bit less inclined to, to plunge in on technology, the people that don't have the tablets, the smartphones, these people do exist. Uh, and I'd be curious to know, like the execs around the boardroom table, when you're saying we're going all digital, we're pulling print, what percent uh, of subscribers, what percentage they'd retain and, and how many people they might lose? It'd be interesting to know. Yeah, I, I wonder if they've taken other case studies or other examples in terms of that, being able to transfer over those subscribers to digital and and what what that looks like it is a process right and so anytime you ask a consumer to go out of their way to do something uh you're going to lose folks along the way and not necessarily because they don't like the product but because they're lazy like that's just it's just an ask of the consumer of like oh if you really want this you know go online and set this up and i think a lot of people just might let it fall by the wayside so yeah uh it will be interesting to see and again i just i just hope the best for for the industry in general, whether it is quote unquote mainstream media or independent media, like I think all media is good as long as it's coming from a, a place of good intention and honesty and and diversity of thought and and folks that that can express themselves and and are you seeing that with people? Are you seeing that like with regards to diversity of thought? I had I had a very fa- a very interesting debate just last night with a guy. I won't say who he is because I'm not trying to pick a fight, but he's very politically connected on the conservative side, and uh, yeah. and we were we were having a, a wonderful conversation. But he was he, we were talking about granting access to interviews in particular to, to pull back the curtain a little bit. He was talking about the the Jason Kenney era in Alberta politics mm. and how for for some members of the media, including myself, it was it was it was a tough slog. It was difficult because he wouldn't grant interviews. He held grudges. He was very there was a lot of malice involved behind the scenes. His staff was vindictive. I mean, these are just facts and i'll go to the wall with actual stories if anybody wants to challenge me on that but that's not the point he was taught i was talking about a return to decency and 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 like alberta premier daniel smith or not she'll talk to anybody 
She'll, I mean, mm-hmm. not anybody, maybe, but, and I'm saying this is. She'll a, talk to you. She'll talk to me. She sat in the studio, our first show in the new studio. And yep. I appreciate that. I appreciate people that, that may not agree with you 100% of the time, but that's not a prerequisite to an interview. That's not the point. Mm-hmm. Uh, but exactly. we started talking about, I said to him, I said, that's what I respect the most when there's Democrats on Fox or when there's Republicans on CNN. And as I'm saying it, I'm also going, gosh, that sucks, doesn't it? That I'm sitting here, it's just assumed all of us around this table having this conversation conversation that there's the Republican cable outlet and the Democrats cable outlet. And I, and, and, and I really lament that, but we've, we've got a, a similar sort of a vibe in Canada, but a bit less subtle. What's your assessment of, of where it's at with regards to diversity of thought? So there, there's a couple of things here. I, and I think the first that I, that I want to emphasize is that culturally we are moving, we're a little behind the Americans. They're already kind of there, but we're we're moving towards this realm of you can't even talk or chat with people that are politically different than you. And I think that is a very concerning trend. Uh, I know growing up, you know, my parents loved to host dinner parties, go to dinner parties. And I remember them and their friends would disagree about politics a lot. And yet they were still friends, you know, and it would be very heated, fun conversations and I lament those days that we could have that. And unfortunately, with things like Twitter, which again, Twitter comes with its pros and its cons, but with Twitter, it, it does try to divide us into these camps and tribes. And I, I don't know how productive that is. And, and I worry just on a cultural level, on a personal level, um, what that means that, that, oh, if you talk to this person or if you're friends with this person, uh, you can't be a true progressive or you can't be a true conservative. And I think that that's uh, really silly. It's um, ridiculous. It's so silly. And when we talk about media and diversity of thought, yeah, I mean, I think some conservatives have a have a real gripe. Um, how valid it is, I don't know. I haven't really studied the you know the the think pieces. Of Mo, I don't know if lie. I don't know if it's just conservatives. I don't. I, I, as a matter of mm. fact, I guarantee it's not just conservatives because you know. Oh, it's I, not because like the a show left, like because, ours. You know what I hear from the left all the time is people people ask why are you platforming people? And there's some validity if someone will say I don't bring on some guy that's got some blo- you know some blog or some vlog out of his basement talking about white supremacy and and, and then I bring him on and pick his brain about white supremacy. No, I, I, I get that. But you know we have the premier in and people say why are you platforming the premier? Like give me a break we can no, that, get to the that point. is very silly uh, when i say diversity of thought what what i mean is um you know the, the pr- progressives or the left you know they have they also have legitimate pr- uh, gripes that sometimes the news media or opinion media leans corporate right it, it leans towards 100 and, and i think that there's a legitimate gripe that way and so when we talk about diversity of thought we're absolutely not perfect and i think that there are absolutely underrepresented voices and it's, you know, I had a tweet, uh, I had a tweet do well uh, this week about saying we, we lack racial representation, particularly in our national opinionists. Mm. Um, and, and it's all white. And, and I say, you know, look at look at the roll call of columnists at the Globe and Mail or at the National Post. And like, it's just not representative of certainly of urban areas, but the country as a whole. And so when it comes to diversity of thought, we can carve it out a, a lot of different ways. Obviously, you know, do we include, as you just noted, like, do we include people who are complete, you know, vaccine deniers and telling you that that this is going to kill you and all that stuff? Like, you probably, yeah, I mean, we probably exclude those people. We probably exclude exclude straight up white supremacists. Like, there's certain exclusions that we ultimately make because time and space is finite. But, um, and we do have to make moral judgments on who we platform and who we don't. But I think... 
striving for a diversity of thought and, and diversity of opinions is, is important regardless of where you stand um, in the political spectrum. Let me ask you this. In closing, uh, yeah. Ivan Provorov, Philadelphia Flyers defenseman, <laughs> wouldn't skate and warm up the other night because it was pride yeah. night. He says it goes against his Russian Orthodox beliefs. Uh, what do you make of the story? What is the appropriate response from the Philadelphia Flyers and the National Hockey League? And, 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 and what do you think writ large people should be talking about with this story? Uh, yeah, I mean, again, I if, if the NHL wants to pursue these type of gestures, um, it has to be wary that there are going to be a minority of players that are not comfortable with it. Um, but again, if you're an employee and your employer wants to, you to wear a certain dress code or a certain um, you know uniform or whatever, you, you end up doing it. And so I, I think Ivan's in the wrong. I, I, I think he should be, you know, not necessarily canceled, but yeah, he should have some sort of consequence from the team or from the league. Um, because ultimately you're not making a political statement. You're wearing a Jersey, right. And it's, it's a rainbow colored Jersey and it's, it's not a big deal. And for him to come out and say, he's not comfortable with it. Well, well, so I'm sorry, your, your league, your employer has said that they stand for these values. And as, as someone taking money from, from those organizations, I think you have an obligation to, to go along with it. Now, yeah. So some people will say, oh, well, what if it was something that you that I disagreed with? Right. Would you be taking a moral stance? Sure. But then you also deal with the consequences of that. Right. Yeah. So, again, I'm not out for his full cancellation, but understanding that there are consequences for when you go against uh, an employer's request, I, I think, is is key in understanding this issue. I appreciate you you picking up on the the employer obligation, the team member, the teammate angle on this. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do think it's nuanced. I think that there's a lot to consider here. Um, I, I think obviously it was unfortunate what it did to that night, but also, you know, sometimes like these silver linings, Mo, you know, where, where, where an incident will happen that yes, is, is unfortunate. It's not best case scenario, but it gets everybody talking and it forces people to think about things that, you know, you may have your gut and I'm talking even about myself. You got your gut instinct, your gut reaction, you know what you think right away. And then, the, and then you consider other thoughts and opinions and you say like, what are the, what are the ramifications? of this what are the bigger pictures what should we all be thinking about and that's always mm-hmm. a positive exercise you know what i mean it's so good to see your face my man and i'm gonna say happy new year thanks for making time happy for new us, year. Uh, everybody should follow you on twitter everybody should check out this is van color on check you're doing an absolutely amazing job there congratulations we're really proud of you Checknews.ca. thanks right. so much ryan you take care it. happy new year all right buddy and welcome back yeah. to hawaii have you ever been to Maui? You ever been to the, the beautiful island of Maui? No, that is the next destination. My wife is is pretty set on going to Hawaii next. So you guys are where we're going to go. I mean, there's there's all the, the, <clears throat> everyone can make the uh, argument for like the big island or, you know, everyone's got their, uh, you know, what is it? Molokai. Like there's all these destinations there. But Maui to me is just like one of the greatest places on planet Earth. Uh, coming up in just a second, we're going to talk to an addictions medicine specialist out of Arizona, the Mayo Clinic, um, the, the opioid crisis is uh, the other health crisis, the other epidemic uh, outside of COVID-19, and it's it's killing uh, Canadians, Americans, and people around the world at a rate that is absolutely unacceptable. Dr. Geyer's got a new book out and believes that she may have found the solution to this. Uh, these conversations are presented by sponsors like our amazing friends at California Closets. You know, you think of California Closets, as the name would suggest, they can help you get organized, they can transform your living space 
maybe a nice walk-in, finally get your life organized. But there's so much more than that. They do workspaces, they do storage areas, and of course, they do totally custom garage storage cabinets. It's the workhorse of the home, your garage. Why not make it work a little harder for you? Custom designed garage cabinetry, drawers, shelves, specialty wall storage racks create a purposeful room for storing garden and snow sports, sports equipment, I mean, keepsakes, even holiday decorations. Transform your living space, including your garage, with a free consultation starting today at californiaclosets.ca. Hey, at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park, we're sounding the alarm, my friends, because you've only got 12 more days, 12 more days to pick up 12 Dilly Bars or 12 DQ Sandwiches. Here's the thing. You're only going to pay for six because it's buy one, get one free. The boxes of Dilly Bars and DQ sandwiches at the Dairy Queens in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road. Don't forget, they've got the dairy-free Dilly Bars as well, which are marvelous. And a big shout-out to these Dairy Queens, these family-owned locations. They're going to be out at the Real Talk Pond Hockey Classic serving up burgers and ice cream treats. That's Saturday, February 4th. Check out RyanJesperson.com events for details on that. If you're thinking of transforming your living space, that's a priority for you this coming summer. Whether it's an anniversary party you got coming up, maybe a special milestone birthday, or maybe you're just sick of looking at this long, long rows of sod and boring trees that aren't growing and they're going to take forever and you need some inspiration. Mike and his team at Eden Landscaping have earned referrals and return business from clients who are gobsmacked i tell you gobsmacked by the work that they do and they're a full service shop so you're not hiring landscape architects you're not subcontracting out to trades they show up they start the job from design all the way through and they don't leave until you're satisfied you can contact them today get the permits pulled get the construction materials ordered now so there's no delays in the summer Eden Landscaping is online at landscapeedmonton.ca. And a big shout out to our friends at Friesen Brothers. Johnny, I know that, you know, the love of your life may be here in the show. So you may not want to reveal it, but do you have a Valentine's Day plan yet? I do. It's a secret plan. boy. Stop it. Well, then I will ask no further questions, but Friesen Brothers wants us to let you know that they've got Valentine's Day charcuterie boards. You can totally customize them. Ready for pickup leading up to the big day. We're giving you lots of advance notice. They've got the like meat and cheese one, you know, the classic charcuterie. And then they have a fabulous dessert charcuterie board available as well. I mean, I say why pick and choose? Go with both of them. You can learn more and order online at Friesen.com. Well, I probably don't have to tell you that the opioid crisis is absolutely out of control. An unacceptable number of people are dying by drug poisoning every day uh, across the country and around the world, including the United States, where every eight minutes somebody dies of an overdose. Dr. Holly Geyer is an addictions medicine specialist operating out of the Mayo Clinic in Arizona. Her new book, Ending the Crisis, uh, A Solution. We hope to touching on and adequately addressing opioid addiction, drug poisoning, and opioid use. Dr. Geyer joining us from Arizona this morning. Thanks so much, and, and welcome to Real Talk up here in Canada. It's nice to see your face. 
Thank you so much. What a privilege to be with you today. Well, you know, you're. Uh, we've been doing some um, digging into the work that you do and trying to better understand, you know, obviously approaches that have been productive here. We're talking about matters of life and death. What brought you, Dr. Geyer, into addictions medicine? What drew you into this field? You know, every part of us has a, a very personal experience with the opioid epidemic, and I grew up in this world. Um, my parents started a drug treatment program in Minnesota, and I, I spent my younger years there working in different aspects, non-clinical mostly, until I entered the world of medicine. And, you know, it mental health has really been an arena that's owned the concept of addiction for so long. But the more I got into the world of medicine, the more I realized we as physicians own a huge part of this problem as well. And that's one of the reasons that I wanted to bring the opioid epidemic into the forefront of America and Canada's uh, uh, viewpoint to understand how it is such a complex disorder that we can all deal with collectively as a society. Can you Let's sort of like set the tone. Let, let's let's pour the foundation here for the conversation just so we can understand it. Obviously, don't have to tell you that, that healthcare delivery systems are a little bit different in Canada and the U.S., but virtually every Canadian hears of the Mayo Clinic. I mean, when I think of somebody, including people that, you know, they'll, they'll call it like health tourism or medical tourism, which isn't always a good thing, obviously, but sometimes people with means or people in really dire circumstances will be heading south of the border to get treatment for something. And when you hear they're going to the Mayo Clinic, you go, okay, they're like pulling out all the stops. This is serious business. Can you give us a sense of what the Mayo Clinic's all about and, and the work that you're doing there so we can better understand your perspective? Absolutely. You know, Mayo, Mayo's medical system is really built on a singular principle. The expectations and the needs of the patients are really at the forefront of how we offer treatment and they we keep them at the center of holistic care. That's one of the things that led us as an organization to initiate an opioid stewardship program a number of years ago, when we recognized that we're so frequently trying to target um, patient uh, uh, expectations as the only thing we're going after, realizing it's causing complications. And what's at the best interest of that patient may not necessarily be what they think they need. That's one of the reasons we wrote this book, is to empower patients and their loved ones to really understand what is truly in their best interest along the course of a pain-related process and how to deal with addiction or opioid-related problems when they arise. One of the interesting things about your book is that it's not really, there's not a lot, uh, and I, thanks to your team, by the way, for passing it along ahead of time. It's, it's not a lot about, about opioids themselves, actually, right? It, it, it's more around the, the contributing factors to this crisis. Can you explain for people that haven't yet read the book? Absolutely. In fact, we think that America's focus on opioids as the problem is the problem. Mm. The reality is that as we've demonized this drug class, what we've forgotten are the people impacted by them. What's truly the, the big issue to face is the misuse of opioids and our misunderstandings of them. Um, opioids are probably one of the greatest drugs ever invented on the planet or at least utilized. And, you know, when used in the right patient for the right reason, the right length and dose, um, they're one of medicine's greatest marvels. When used outside those parameters, they lead to statistics. I've uh, I, I, I've got a friend that's uh, waiting for a surgery. He's an avid skier. He's in his early 50s and uh, he's got a knee issue that's it's really gnarly. Five surgeries already and uh, he's he's in line, I guess, or the next step is an inevitable knee replacement. I was lucky enough to be talking to him up on the mountain just a few days ago and I asked him how he's doing and he said uh, in, in in paraphrasing, essentially he's living uh, in so much pain right now, Holly, uh, 
because he's afraid, he's concerned uh, to, to get onto opioids. He's concerned about the pain management plan that he's been presented with because he sees stories around him and he's concerned about what might happen. You must hear these stories a million times and sometimes probably pretty far down the road of somebody that's dealing with an addiction. Oh, it's horrible. You know what? We call it the opioid epidemic, but the reality is that there's two dueling demics here. We've got the pain crisis epidemic in America, as well as the opioid epidemic. And because of all the miscommunications about this drug class, I treat little patients all the time who are scared to death, even near end of life, you know, with bad advancing cancers who won't touch an opioid because they're afraid of becoming addicted. And it's that misunderstanding that's leading to these pain crises and a, a suffering that doesn't need to take place. And of course, there's the other side of the coin, people who look for a pill at any expense, right, to alleviate pain because they want to continue daily activities without using pain as what it's supposed to be, right, a protective, preventative type of bodily resource to help us set limitations so we heal. And so you've got these two problems at once. And that's what this book addresses. You know, the first half is about how to use opioids safely. If you're given them, walk into that doctor's office empowered with the information to have an educated conversation. I can tell you, there is no reason in 2023 that we as physicians should be the only ones privileged with the information on how to know how to use these drugs safely. That's your information. And when we don't give it to you, you overdose. What that's are some of the big, I know that you're going to say, I want to be clear, you know, people say to people like this, is not medical advice obviously you want to talk to your own uh, doctor you want to talk everybody's situation is different let's get all the caveats out there but what are some common mistakes or misunderstandings where does the lack of information really play out in cases that you see I mean if we want the public to be better educated what are a couple of key things that they need to know about opioids that opioids aren't always the answer. We had done a large national study in America about four years ago, and it showed that 79% of the general public believed that the appropriate indication for opioids is for chronic pain. And the answer couldn't be more of the opposite. In fact, it offers almost no benefits in that population. You know, other things are when to use opioids in conjunction with other therapies. Have that conversation. You know, we're not titrating opioids to be complete pain relievers. The goal should be functionality. So talk to your doctor about what other agents you could use to make sure that you're staying safe while on them and minimizing the amount of opioids you needed in order to achieve those goals. And then, of course, how to dispose of them and what to do with leftovers. Yeah, doctor, we've uh, in our neck of the woods in, in the province of Alberta, uh, we're just up from Montana. Uh, we're, we, you know, there's there's a lot of talk right now because, of course, all of this, there's a lot of politics involved in medicine. And I know that's that's the case everywhere, obviously. Um, but we've had, you know, concurrent governments. We've had these we've had different governments over the past six years or so that have had very different approaches to managing the opioid epidemic. We had a, a government that's more of a progressive government. You might describe it uh, from from 2015 to 2019. That was that was uh, open to, I think, exploring different harm reduction measures. We saw a rise in in resources around supervised consumption, uh, you know, so called supervised injection sites, and and then uh, around 2019, a more conservative uh, government took over, defunded a lot of those harm reduction sites, including supervised consumption, but they've dumped a ton of money into addictions counseling and detox centers. And it's hard to argue against either. I think in a perfect world, we would see resources for both. Uh, but in your assessment, what works and what solutions are just not working? 
I, you know, I think the most important solution that we could offer people is exactly what we've done with this book. I, I would venture to say that the average person out there this morning listening to this podcast hasn't touched a hot stove, right? right. <laughs> and there's a reason for it. <laughs> you learn very early on in life that doing so will lead to consequences. But what we're not doing in America is providing the information to every single person before they even touch an opioid on what the risks and the benefits are. And that's why we want to educate the public broadly on on this drug class so that we can get rid of those myths. For those struggling with opioid-related complications, primarily addiction, we know there's a host of problems out there and a host of responses, many of which came out of those 2016 CDC guidelines. Some have worked, some haven't. But I can tell you that any opportunity to get someone the chance to get into a treatment program, which often takes place at these harm reduction locations, is a good thing. And when it's done right, the data shows that it does get people into the treatment they need. Of course, comprehensive counseling and medications for opioid use disorder are a part of that plan. And um, we as an organization very much agree with any effort that uh, averts a crisis waiting to happen. You know, I've often lamented the fact that, that that sometimes you have to say in in, in talk radio or in podcasting, in, in public facing media, some things that come across as pretty calloused to get some people to care about an issue. And we catch ourselves or we're here, we'll hear people say something like, you know, uh, the overdose crisis isn't just impacting the homeless population. There are people overdosing in the suburbs as though that's what it takes or that's what it needs to take for people to care about this. But I think it reiterates the fact that th there's a big, a huge amount of stigma attached to this issue. And I have to believe that that's part of the reason why maybe some people don't see it as a full-blown crisis. Uh, am I onto something? You've nailed it. You know, we look at addiction from the medical community's perspective as a medical disorder. This is billable, it's diagnosable, and quite frankly, it's treatable, which is so unfortunate considering less than 10% of people struggling with addiction and opioids never get the treatment they need. And so I think understanding what that biology is that drives it, people will really revolutionize how they view the disorder. It's essentially a diabetes of the brain, a change in the chemical structure and the wiring. And that's treatable if we can get them to the treatment they need. Who did you write the book for? Family members, loved ones, and patients. We wrote it for anyone who might, in the course of their existence, touch an opioid. And by the way, in 2015, the data shows that one out of every three adults in America was on an opioid. So there's a lot of room for this education. Wow. Uh, Dr. Holly Geyer uh, is doing amazing work at the Mayo Clinic out of Arizona. You're the director of physicians there as well, I should mention. And congratulations on your new book, Ending the Crisis, the Mayo Clinic's Guide to Opioid Addiction and Safe Opioid Use. We appreciate you making time for us today, doctor. Thanks for it. Pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. I know that this is uh, these conversations, man. We, we check out the live chat. I don't know if you were in there. Like, yeah, we mentioned Dr. Bradley Martin all the time because he's become just a wonderful friend of the show. But he's, mm -hmm. he also I feel like we have kind of an unofficial medical advisor that joins on the live stream. <laughs> the guy's a, a physician out of Hinton. And, and he says, you know, um, you know, uh, opioids after orthopedic surgeries are, are a massive issue that nobody discusses. He says it's, it's an unbelievable problem. And the, the main issue is that the medical community, uh, says Dr. Martin, believed that that opioids were safe you know as, as essentially solutions right for chronic pain until about 10 or 15 years ago and mm -hmm. so you get somebody i mean you hear the story a million times i'm talking about my buddy you know waiting on this knee surgery yeah and and watching him walk i mean we have shredded together on the it's mountain horrible before. isn't it he can barely walk right now well, but he's, I, he doesn't want to get on op you know yeah 
I haven't brought it up either, but my wife is dealing with a right knee problem. She oh. has for like four or five years, and she about five years ago she went to a doctor, and they said, "Hey, you can try therapy, you know, massage, cannabis, CBD, or or we can do the surgery now." And yeah. she's been doing, you know, the CBD. She's been trying everything, but the same thing. She doesn't want to try an opioid because of all these documentaries and exposés and movies that have come out, kind of. Uh, demonizing it when uh, like the doctor said these are really good drugs they help people a lot but she's the same way she refuses to do it so this morning when we're driving to work we're literally commuting and she's in terrible pain she stops she's driving she can't drive she can't even drive like yeah. leave her knee in that position you're talking about just regular everyday everyday walking going stuff. up the stairs and you know so i had to drive to work but it's the same thing now she's considering getting the surgery because the pain is so bad but she's been going through four years of incredible pain in that time right huh um i mean I'm, my thoughts are with real talkers like dorothy who's watching us live this morning she says our family lost my sister in 2021 due to due to addiction dorothy i'm so sorry to hear it she says my parents were both you know so-called clean and sober for 40 plus years um geez tracy says that she worked with people that you know with addiction issues found that in, in some circumstances folks had to hit rock bottom um, sometimes at the expense of others uh, before they wanted help. And even that is supercharged language. I understand people are coming at this from a position of, of, of empathy and endeavoring to understand. Some of you have worked in the field. My brother works in the field. You know that. Kyle's been on the show before. Um, works at Inside, at the supervised consumption site on East Hastings in Vancouver. So this is front. And my father was a physician for 45 years, had a, a remarkable career. And and so this is, these are conversations around the family dinner table that we have and about how doctors' prescribing practices have changed and how everybody's had to level up and and learn and understand more. Tony says, my mom's GP, general practitioner, family doctor, prescribed Oxy for her, OxyContin, for her leg pain. Tony says, I lost my mind. She says, I told him this was criminal of him to do that. All she needed was a massage, right? You're, these, these, sometimes these quick fixes or, you know, but, but I do think, and I, and I hope, um, because this has been prominent. I mean, even colleges of physicians and surgeons across the country have talked about prescribing practices and 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 really um, pushing toward an absolute mind shift, mm -hmm. a habit shift. Um, where you know, I think a lot of times you, you'll you'll hear people's stories. I mean, there's did, like, were you aware he's talked about it publicly? It's not a secret. I mean, the chief of staff to Alberta's premier was a number of years ago living on the streets mm -hmm. you know like addicted to yeah. booze and coke and 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 uh his his um recovery from that i mean it's just an it's just one example i admire people that are willing to go public and tell their stories and talk about their recovery uh we welcome your comments anytime to talk at ryanjesperson.com you can send us an email using your name you can request anonymity if that makes you more comfortable uh, to share your personal stories. We want to make sure that we reflect real life. We want to reflect what people are actually dealing with. And uh, we sure appreciate the candid nature that, that a lot of you bring to the table when you share your stories with us. I want to put something silly on your radar in just a second. But before we do, let's make sure that we recognize the sponsors that keep this show rolling. And that includes the amazing team at Kubi Renewable Energy. You know, they're Western Canada's number one solar installers. We learned this just a month ago or so. You know, one in five solar installations done in Western Canada are done by Kubi Renewable Energy. How amazing is that? You know, a solar power system these days, I want to throw some numbers at you, Real Talkers, generates about 10,000 kilowatts uh, per year. When you talk about how much, you know, carbon 
Could your solar energy system offset? You want to you decrease? You want to lessen your carbon footprint? You know that the average solar power system will save over 170 tons of carbon over its lifetime. That's amazing, right? You know, so in a province like ours, when cold snaps are, are common during the winter, the average home is going to ramp up its natural gas use by 40%. Electricity use by, on average, about 8% uh, for every 10 degree drop below zero. You can sell carbon credits that you earn with your solar power system, actually make money and feel better about the footprint you're leaving on planet Earth. Kubi Energy can make this happen for you. And you can all start today. Get that ball rolling with a free quote at kubienergy.ca. So you've got your solar power system up on the roof, and uh, what next? Well, you want to go to parkpower.ca for a couple of reasons. Number one, you know, you might need your backup. Of course, you're still probably going to use some natural gas. Who doesn't need internet? They do all three, electricity, natural gas, and internet, and they offer Alberta's best deal when it comes to buying back excess energy. Your system's giving you more juice than you need in the summer months. Park Power is going to pay you in some circumstances four or five times what the big guys will. It is just another reason why it makes sense to bring your business to your friendly local utilities provider. Don't forget the promo code REALTALK23 knocks 50 bucks off your bill times three if you bundle electricity, natural gas, and internet. Who doesn't want to save 150 bucks? The promo code REALTALK23 at parkpower.ca. And a big shout out to our friends at Local Environmental Services. <laughs> we got a bit of a pile of emails for trash talk tomorrow, <laughs> but there's always room for more. You can send us your rent, your rave, your gripe, whatever you need that's grinding your gears to blast out to everybody else. Shoot us an email, trash talk presented by Local Environmental Services. You can view their services online at localenvironmental.ca. If you're living in the Edmonton area, White Courton area, Regina and area, if you're on the prairies, take your business, keep it local, save money, and actually have real life humans answer the phone at Local Environmental Services. Do you want to get serious before you get silly? Sure. Uh, breaking news just 12 minutes ago. Alec Baldwin is going to be charged in that uh, fatal oh, shooting. shooting. Yeah, so involuntary manslaughter. The Santa Fe District Attorney just brought charges against him and the filmers, the film's armorer, which was the woman, Hannah Garetti, I believe, who loaded the gun uh, with uh, what she thought was blanks, and I guess they weren't blanks, or I don't know what the actual specifics are. If you want to pull up the story there, we can just throw it up for people. But Yeah, yeah um, wow. So he was fighting that for a while, right? Because it was presumed to be an accident. But yeah. I guess things have changed. Well, he there. he went on the record. Uh, that was the film set Rust, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, he was one of the film's producers as well as its star. Uh, so I'm just seeing this for the very first time right now. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, uh, Helena Hutchins was killed on that film set when he fired a prop gun. Uh, this was back uh, in October of 2021 mm -hmm. uh, in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Yeah, you remember, uh, and neither of them have commented on the charges at this point. You remember, though, Alec Baldwin... Uh, in a, in what I thought was, um, gosh, I mean, this is a tough spot for everybody. You imagine you're the person that loaded that firearm. I mean, you'd never forgive yourself. Mm -hmm. Alec Baldwin will never forgive himself. There's a family that is bereaved and thousands of people. When somebody dies, sorry to state the obvious here, uh, you know, we just talked about opioid deaths and drug poisonings. Um, 
like the ripple effect of someone's death uh, can mm-hmm. can touch thousands of people. Um, but you think of of somebody that would have been involved in a horrific accident like this, and then to be charged. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd be curious to know what what prosecutors reviewed to to give them the the inclination. It must be to something substantial. Lay right? charges because I think what happened was, if I'm correct, is that at the time he fired the gun, he wasn't supposed to be like they weren't filming. Okay, or he was. Yeah, he was doing something. So yeah. it was. Yeah. So. Oh, but man. this stuff happens like Brandon Lee. That's how Brandon Lee died, right? On yeah. set as well. Yeah. Blanks that were not blanks in a yeah. gun. So I heard a story. I, I don't have the information in front of me, so I'll keep it vague because I don't want to screw it up. But I heard a story a, a while ago about uh, two eight-year-old girls uh, that their 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 dads, one of the, one of them, they were best friends. And, and one of the girls' dads, for whatever reason, the firearm was not stored securely. Um, it was stored loaded which is just uh mm. i mean i know that we're gonna get if you get gun people um and, and i'm not using that as a pejorative like if you got enthusiasts um you know and, and fill your boots like we're, i'm not inherently against guns um i'm nervous around guns guns aren't my thing um but we had we had uh, we've had some amazing conversations on the show about gun laws and gun legislation and gun culture mm-hmm. um but but you'll get like the hardcore gun enthusiasts and all of them will bang the table like when they hear stories like that about responsible gun transport responsible gun storage responsible gun ownership uh, you know with the guns locked up in a locker and the ammunition stored securely somewhere else and to hear these stories of like a loaded gun being left accessible to yeah. kids i mean people that have you know the loaded handgun in the night table dresser drawer kind of idea uh just absolutely horrific but uh yeah alec baldwin was doing interviews shortly or he did at least one or two because he was on the record yeah, like within, a, within he, a couple he seemed of days pretty upset well right? of course you're upset but he was also very adamant as you would be but mm-hmm. but i wonder if that was on the advice of attorneys or not he was very adamant saying basically like he, he didn't spell it out, but he basically was like, this is not my fault, um, which is also a, a way of saying this is someone's fault. Yeah. And if he fired it at a time he wasn't supposed to be because blanks can still kill people. I don't think people know this. I'm not a gun expert, but it, like those dense metals, little shards of them from blanks can still come off huh. and, and injure people. So that's, I guess, what happened in this circumstance. It's just a bad situation, but uh, yeah, involuntary manslaughter is looking like what the charge wow. will be. Well, I appreciate you bringing that to our attention. Um, I'll, I'll bring the, the, the dumb shit to the table tomorrow. <laughs> I was gonna talk, we were, we... Or should we balance out the heavy with, with some light well, we got some time. to wrap? I mean, it's just kind of, yeah, we always got time. We can do whatever we want, but uh, did, did you see the, uh, in our home city of Edmonton, ha- have you seen that there, there's a contest right now to... Um, <laughs> to name these snow plows <laughs> i've seen some of them already on plows this is today a, yeah. okay so you don't have to live in edmonton <laughs> to find this amusing uh anna yunker is a, a journalist who does an amazing job in edmonton i'm a big fan of hers uh she uh she uh, reports for the edmonton journal edmonton sun and they have chosen the 15 names for new snow plows <laughs> in edmonton or at least i don't know if they're new but they're getting named um of course amersleet snow that's a great one uh it, referencing edmonton mayor amerji so he obviously the blizzard of Oz. The Blizzard Wizard. Uh, I thought it was pretty good. Connor McBladeit. Amazing. Connor McBladeit is very good. Uh, Control Salt Delete. <laughs> That's a great one, too. <laughs> Fast and Flurious. Uh, you know, of course, you've got Plowy McPlowface. That's just that's just a given. Mm-hmm. Bodie McBoatface, I think, was the origin of, mm-hmm. of that trend. Uh, my personal favorite is... The Big Laplowski. I love that one. The Big Laplowski. I heard Connor on the radio this morning talking about it, and they said, "Hey, what do you think of the snowplow named after you?" He's like, "Well, you know, 
I think it's pretty fun. Edmontonians take their hockey seriously. They take winter seriously. So <laughs> I accept. But how did Leon Dry Sidewalk not get in there? Come oh. on. Am I wrong? That's John a great Hicks. one. Hello. Did you just come up with that or are you stealing it from someone? Boom. You got to tweet that right now. <laughs> You can let us know what you would have named the snow plow if you didn't hear it. What, 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 there's Mr. Plow, obviously an awesome Simpsons reference. Uh, Peter Parka is pretty good. Nice, nice Spider-Man reference there. Uh, Plowosaurus Rex. How about this? Uh, uh, Inuk dialect. Uh, is it Kanik, uh, which is uh, the word for snowfall? There, mm. you learned something today on the show. I hope you learn something every five minutes here on the show. I would tell you at this point, typically, as we wrap, who's coming up on the show tomorrow? But do you want a real peek behind the curtain? We don't know. We have no idea. <laughs> we don't know who's going to be on the show tomorrow. But that just means that we're going to be back at it between now and then, furiously endeavoring to bring you the news of the day. But in all seriousness, the stuff you care about. You know a great way to make sure that that's reflected here? Be in touch with us. Let us know who you'd love to hear from right here on Real Talk. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, Executive Producer Josh Dunford, Technical Producer John Hicks, General Manager Katie Cook Chivers, Account Coordinator Lawrence Durlego, Human Resources Lena Shepard, Website Design Mike Johnston, VoiceOver by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandy Morin, Ann Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Soto, and Nakota Sioux, home to the Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is a relay project. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.